0: I'm going to have to change my Twitter profile to no matter how cynical you are, you're still being naive. So we're going to do it. I see Glenn's in the background right now. Glenn, get ready. Bringing you in in three, two, one. Sir, how you
1: doing? Doing great. Sorry I'm late. It's everybody else's fault. My assistant, my team's everybody but
0: mine. I just want the record to reflect that, but I'm glad to be with you. And don't worry about it because I, I got through the first five minutes of what I would have asked you in any case, which was your professional your, your training and your professional uh, progression in life. Um, Glenn, ordinarily, I, I would dive into childhood. I won't do it this time, but if you could give us an idea, w- born, raised parents, what your childhood was like in order to understand how you have become who you are today. Sure.
1: Um, so I was uh, born in New York, but my parents moved when I was an infant to South Florida, which is where I grew up in the kind of suburbs of Fort Lauderdale. And my parents divorced when I was very young, like a lot of couples in the This early 70s did. Um, And, you know, I would describe my upbringing as basically kind of like working class lower middle class. My mother was a single mother. She worked at McDonald's and those kind of hourly wage jobs to support us. And my father was a nice, good, involved father, but he was on his third marriage very quickly and uh, didn't make a lot of money to begin with. And three wives means that you don't have many resources. Um, But I had decent parents. I think the Predominant part of my childhood is realizing that I was gay. It was in the, you know, early 1980s. I was 13 in 1980 when the AIDS epidemic began. That was the year Ronald Reagan was elected. There was a lot of social conservatism that was predominant in our politics. And so the first kind of awareness I had of even being gay was associated not with a spiritual sickness, but with a literal sickness. It made me question a lot of things about. Pronouncements of authority, you know, when society condemns you, you can either like internalize that um, and hate yourself or kill yourself, or you can try and prove to society that they shouldn't hate you by being very kind of pleasing and appeasing and, you know, sort of the Pete Buttigieg route. Um, or you can, you know, start questioning authority and asking what their credibility is for having judged you in this manner and instead turning the light not on yourself, but back on them. And I think that would ended up being my strategy and ended up, you know, kind of shaping how I look at a lot of things. Um, And I kind of see that even though it involved a lot of struggle, et cetera, as kind of a a blessing because I think it taught me, uh, you know, to question things. And when you have this rockier path, um, uh, oftentimes you develop a lot of skills that you would be without if your path were smoother.
0: Were you a troublemaker growing up as a kid?
1: Yeah, I was a huge troublemaker. I was constantly suspended you know, from like junior high and then like more serious things in high school, I almost didn't graduate. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that was my anti-authoritarianism finding expression, you know, not yet against power centers, but against, you know, my middle school chemistry teacher or uh, the high school principal. Um, one time my, my best friend and I went to the, our school in the middle of the night, and this was, you know, before everything was surveilled, so you could actually still do things about detection. I know it's shocking to realize that there was actually a recent moment in our history where you could actually do things without constantly being monitored, but you could. And we spray painted the entire school with the most obscene and vulgar (laughs) and offensive things we could possibly think of. And then I made sure that they knew that it was me, but only to the extent that they were just short of being able to prove it so that I was able to deny it with this huge smirk, knowing that they knew I did it. But not being able to prove it and just refusing to admit it, so that was the kind of mischief that I I often I found myself into. Yeah, that was I think like the way my anti-authoritarianism, you know, was sort of a vehicle for that
0: fantastic. Ph- I mean it's phenomenal just because I, I I was just make, mentioning the similarities. We both studied philosophy, both went into law, both went to a big firm, then both started on our own. I was also a pain in the ass, uh, troublemaker, and I did something equally stupid, but even more stupid. I I defaced it and then wrote my name. So it was much tougher for the um <laughs> it was yeah, much you tougher. You authored to that.
1: your work. You authored I, your I, work. I, 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 I took was a hockey pu- coward.
0: Well, oh, I took a hockey puck and like wrote all over the hockey rink, and then I put my name like an idiot. Um, Glenn, I'm going to end this on YouTube and we're going to go over exclusively to Rumble. It changes nothing from us, but I want to bring sure. it exclusively to Rumble for the real stuff. Removing people, the link is in the pinned comment uh, and see you there. Three, two, one. Okay, Glenn. So let's you, you, study, you study philosophy, you go to law school, and then you decide to go to a law firm. Uh, quick question, Like, why did you leave the law firm, why did you start on your own, and um, ha- how, why did you pick uh, constitutional rights um, as, as a focus?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was never a person who was ever going to be comfortable in some big institutional Wall Street law firm. You know, I, I went there in part because the amount of money they pay people who graduate from elite schools, as you know, is insane, especially if you grow up kind of feeling, you know, always poor. And then suddenly they tell you they're going to put this amount of money into your bank account at the end of each month. You know, it's a temptation that few of us can... Resist. I knew it was going to be very temporary, but I also knew that entering that world would forever demystify it for me. I didn't want to feel like there was this kind of place that I never gained entrance into and therefore would never have the actual confidence that I understood it or could thrive within it. So I, I kind of purposely wanted to go there in order to understand it. But I also, you know, a lot of people who do evil or just who do banal things also can be very smart. And the firm I was at Lockto Lipton was full of extremely smart lawyers who are very good lawyers, despite the fact that they spend their lives representing, you know, Goldman Sachs and investment banks and insurance companies. They are very skillful in what they do. And I learned a lot, but I just, you know, I stayed 18 months. They tried to get me to stay longer. They liked me. I was doing a good job. I found the work intellectually engaging. But, you know, I didn't want to be representing institutions. I wanted to be throwing rocks at institutions. And I probably should have stayed a little longer because leaving on your own after 18 months is a dumb thing to do. You know way less than you think you knew. It was a much bigger struggle than I anticipated it would be. But for me, I never was really interested in politics in the sense of partisan politics. So this was like the 90s. So the Soviet Union had collapsed. There was no more Cold War. We were supposedly in this peace dividend. It was the Clinton years dominated by these really trivial scandals. I mean, not, you know, you can elevate them in importance if you want, like, oh, lying under oath or whatever. But the reality is, you know, it was like Monica Lewinsky and Linda Tripp. And, um, you know, there were some important things like the Oklahoma City bombing um, that was used as a pretext to try and control the internet before it could even grow. I'm not saying there was nothing that happened that mattered, but I was really not interested in the day-to-day partisan disputes at all. I was much more interested in the kind of conceptual framework that the founders had created. i I, you know, I, to this day, I find it ingenious, the, the kind of insight into human, into human nature that they developed in, in the wake of the enlightenment that caused them to question things and then built a government to try and curb our worst abuses. I believed in it. And so I wanted to work on that. That was a much greater interest of mine.
0: And so, I mean, so then you, you go it on your own and you're a lawyer at the time of 9-11. Correct. And, um, I mean uh, let's we're going to get into the you know the biggest the biggest scandals of modern history that we've been seeing recently but 9/11 happens what's what's your what's your take on it not about like conspiracy theories is it, is it, what's your take of, uh, uh, on the official narrative what was your take on the response to it is it a case of uh, exploiting weaponizing government incompetence and how does that affect uh, your career trajectory
1: Yeah I mean You know, I I lived and worked in Manhattan. You know, I I loved New York when I was there. And so, um, you know, 9-11 was was traumatizing, you know, in the sense that everywhere you went, on every street corner, there were, you know, everywhere you looked, pictures of people who obviously were dead under this rubble, but desperate family members, you know, were desperately hoping they had somehow, you know, made their way to an, an ER and forgot who they were or whatever. The smell, the smells were very much in the air for weeks. I mean, I remember you know, it took me like at least a week, I went to a film to watch a film on purpose. And I remember I had spent 10 minutes for the first time in a week, not thinking about what happened. I mean, it was a very traumatic amount for people to live there. Um, it was a big deal is really what I mean. I mean, those two buildings came crashing down. The plane was flown into the Pentagon. You know, there was kind of this sense for the first time in American history in a long time of uh, the uncertainty of the stability of the country and the society. And so because I wasn't very political, I was, you know, not very critically, I wasn't absorbing political events in a very critical way. You know, I read the New York Times, I read the Atlantic, I read the New Yorker, the kind of things that, you know, well-educated cosmopolitan liberals consumed. And I thought I was basically getting the, you know, the, the story often with a lot of, you know, errors and lies. And I wasn't that naive, but I, I, I didn't really, I wasn't reading things with much of a critical eye. So. You know, I was angry after 9-11. I thought it was, you know, the right thing to do for the United States to go to Afghanistan and avenge, you know, this attack by going after the people who did it. I was not some immediate radical. But, you know, I think that wore off after a couple of months. And I think the big turning point for me was in February 2002. So let's say four or five months after 9-11 was the case of Jose, Jose Padilla, which a lot of people have forgotten, where a U.S. citizen, Jose Padilla, arrived at Chicago's O'Hare International Airport and was immediately arrested. John Ashcroft, the then attorney general, was in Moscow at the time and held a quick press conference and accused Jose Badia of being a dirty bomber, someone who was trying to enter the United States to detonate a radiological weapon, which was obviously very frightening. But instead of arresting him and charging him with that crime, George Bush signed a decree declaring him an enemy combatant, which meant he had no rights. He was imprisoned for the next three and a half years in a military brig. No due process, no charges, no access to a lawyer, no access to the outside world, incommunicado. And obviously, as a constitutional lawyer, the one red line you believe the government of the United States can and will never cross is to imprison American citizens without some function of due process.
0: Jose Bedia, Jose was the... Badia, he was a citizen. He was a citizen. He was,
1: he was a, a US born American okay. citizen. Um, you know, he was out of the country. He'd become Muslim. Um, he was born, I forget exactly to what ethnicity, but to a Latin American family. I believe his parents were immigrants, but he was born in the United States. Um, his parents were American citizens. He was a natural born U S citizen. And so the idea that we were now in a climate, not only where this is happening, but very, very few people were willing to even ask questions about it because they instantly got branded You know anyone who asked questions at that time instantly got branded as sympathetic to al-qaeda being on the side of terrorists that really was the climate not just months but a couple of years at least after 9 11 that's what really started kind of awakening my sense that something had gone pretty awry here caused me to seek out alternative amounts of information and just in general kind of uprooted my confidence that the american framework the constitutional framework would provide this kind of red line that no government would cross. I started realizing that the fears around 9-11 and then the anthrax attacks, which to this day I don't think we know the real perpetrator, that really intensified fears of Americans because that meant it wasn't just you know huge buildings that were vulnerable, but suburbanites in their homes. The anthrax could show up in your mailbox and you know, it was this like Bond-like story about this highly weaponized strain. I mean, it was frightening to people. The combination of that put the population in fear and immediately that fear was exploited to get Americans to assent to things which would have been previously unthinkable. And the more I started thinking that way, the more alarmed I became, the more interested I became. And that kind of is what set my trajectory by thinking, you know, litigating individual cases in a justice system that itself had been co-opted was woefully inadequate. I needed to find a way to kind of have a bigger voice in the broader conversation
0: and so that's when you decide to wind up litigation and move into i guess investigative journalism
1: yeah i mean even that was kind of by chance um you know i'd started like reading blogs um which at the time seemed radical and i guess to some extent they were they were a little heterodox i mean looking back they were you know people like Matt Iglesias and uh, like uh marcos molitzes i mean the least radical people on the planet but in that climate you know, these are people who were at least were writing in a different way and without constraints. There are a lot of them right wing bloggers as well. Um, so it took me a while, but it was really by chance. I came to Brazil in 2005, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I met my now husband of 17 years. We couldn't live together in the U.S. because there was a law in place that barred same-sex couples from getting immigration rights. So he couldn't get a green card to live with me in the U.S. So the only choice we had, if we wanted to be together, which I knew we did was for me to stay in Brazil and therefore staying in Brazil, obviously required me to find a way to make a living. I couldn't be a lawyer in Brazil. I'm not a licensed Brazilian lawyer. I don't know anything about the Brazilian legal system. And so kind of just on a lark one day in September, 2005, I just hit create blog. I never intended it for me to, to be a career. I just was finding a way to, I had a lot of free time. I was trying to find a way to participate in that conversation as I described and very quickly found a big audience in part because of luck and and in part because of, I think, just, you know, skill and work. And then it just quickly turned into uh, a career.
0: Uh, I, I mean, I, I presume the biggest initial story was the Edward Snowden uh, leak documents that you broke. Is, is that the first biggest story that you would say of your career?
1: Yeah. I mean, well, certainly there was nothing on the scale of the Snowden story. I mean, that's like a once in a generation story, right? It won the Pulitzer. and I mean, you don't get those every year. But the reason Edward Snowden had come to me was because he was an avid reader of mine who, remember Edward Snowden is somebody who believed in the, the U.S. security state. I mean, he enrolled, he enlisted in the U.S. Army and wanted to go fight in Iraq. He broke both his legs in basic training and couldn't, but then went to the CIA and the NSA as a true believer. And through a combination of seeing the things he saw, but also being influenced by you know, several writers, one of whom was me, became very disillusioned that this whole thing was kind of a a deceit. It was a fraud, and he was particularly offended that all of this machinery had been turned not against America's enemies but inward onto American citizens. And so, you know, my work before the Snowden story, I broke some stories about, you know, Chelsea Manning's uh, abusive treatment in, in 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 prison that led to the resignation of a bunch of Obama officials. I did a lot of work on. Obama's drone program, a lot of work on the war on terror, but I, you know, it didn't break any story of the magnitude of the Snowden reporting. I mean, like I said, it's like a once in a generation story until 2012 at the end of 2012, when Edward Snowden contacted me. Uh,
0: and I, I've got to, I mean, I, I love to know the details of this. How does he, if you can it just explain a little bit, like how does he contact you when he does contact you and you know that you're going to disclose, um, leaked documents i i I presume they were of classified nature i mean classified leaked information you're you're, you're making enemies and also like enemies high up and you know that once you let this out of the box there's no pushing it back in neither for snowden neither for yourself Uh, how do you stomach that what's the what is the what is the psychological process you go through to say this could put me in danger and this will change the trajectory of my life
1: Yeah, I mean, these were not just classified documents. These were all top secret documents from the most sensitive and secretive agency in the entire U.S. government, which is the NSA. You know, for decades before the Church Committee, the joke in Washington was the NSA stands for no such agency. You know, people were petrified to even mention it. People barely knew it existed. And there had never been a leak close to this magnitude about the intelligence community. The only comparable leak were the Pentagon Papers, in when, which Daniel Ellsberg leaked to the New York Times in 1971 to prove the American government was lying about the war in Vietnam, telling them publicly, we believe we're about to win, but internally knowing they would never win. But in terms of the intelligence community, the CIA uh, the, and the NSA, there'd been nothing on this magnitude. And some of these documents were, you know, the most secretive and sensitive documents that exist in the entire US government. And there weren't a few, you know, it was an gigantic archive of many, many hundreds of thousands or more documents that he provided me. And, you know, the way it worked was he contacted me by email through an anonymous account. And of course, you know, I, he knew at the time, what most of us didn't, which was the extent of the surveillance state domestically. And he, of course, is being very careful about what he was willing to tell me. And so he had a hard time getting my attention because, you know, people always pop up in your email inbox. I'm sure you've had this, you know, hey, I have a big story for you. It's huge. And oftentimes they're crazy or they, you know, you can't drop everything you're doing the instant that happens. So it took me a while to establish a kind of safe communicate a communicative framework with him where he felt comfortable talking to me using encryption that no one at the time, you know, was using. It was very complex and difficult. But finally we got that that created and and he said to me, You know, I have the biggest leak in the history of U.S. security state. I need you to come to Hong Kong in order to meet me and get it. And obviously that made no sense to me because senior U.S. security officials aren't in Hong Kong. They're in northern Virginia or wherever. And so I told him, look, before I get on a plane and come there, I need to believe that you're real. I need to believe that I need to know that you're not a crazy person making wild claims. I'm not flying to Hong Kong to meet some, you know, insane person. So he sent me a tiny sample of maybe two dozen documents. And just those two dozen documents among them were the PRISM program, which is a top secret program where the NSA was collaborating deeply with with basically big tech. It was, you know, Apple and Microsoft at the time and Yahoo and Facebook, where those companies were turning over millions and millions of data pieces every day on American citizens. So just that tiny little, you know, sample he sent me made me understand that this is going to be a life-changing moment this is going to be the biggest story in journalism in in the generation and and as you said you know we were going to make enemies of the most power i mean the united states government for all we're taught about how democratic it is they do not fuck around when it comes to their secrets um especially from this part of the government but you know i spent a lot of time talking to my husband when it happened and we talked about the various risks and he ultimately told me like you know, you were, this is what you were born to do. This is what you went into journalism to do. You know, you don't want to go cover zoning boards for, you know, a local paper, nor do you want to be a puppet of the Pentagon for the Washington Post. That was never your goal. This was your goal. You know, as I talked about before, I wanted to throw rocks at institutions, not um, defend them. And so there was really no choice, even though we were aware of of what was going to come crashing down on us. And I got on a plane and I went to Hong Kong and was shocked to find not a 65 year old grizzled national security, you know, national security official, but this 29 year old kid. And I did start thinking maybe this was a fraud and it took me a day or two to establish a rapport with him and then to see these documents and realize it was anything but a fraud. And we spent, you know, 12 days in Hong Kong together, never always, you know, very scared of what was gonna happen that the US government or Chinese officials or Hong Kong officials or anyone else had discovered what we were doing in that hotel room. We're going to burst down the door. We were very eager to get the stories out as quickly as possible to give us the protection of that, you know, that kind of limelight. Um, and so, it, you know, there's a film that was made about it, Citizen Ford, which is a real-time documentary that won the Oscar that shows the kind of extreme tension under which we were working.
0: I'm absolutely going to go watch that. I just have to talk the kids into watching that. But I've, I, I I've mean, I, I haven't seen that documentary. I haven't seen any of this but I I and I only briefly remember living through it uh I just practically Yeah it, it's
1: on YouTube by the way now for free my kids which who, who who hate watching anything that I'm involved in even they watched that film and and they liked it it's kind of this like you know has this like thriller vibe to it because it was you know, it's, very high drama. Um, it's nuts. And, and it's
0: it's. It, I was gonna. It's the stuff out of movies, but in real life, yeah. you're sitting in a hotel room. I mean, you, you get the documents. How do you vet the documents are even authentic when you get them? Like they're pa- they're digital and paper, or primarily primarily digital.
1: They're all digital because that's how he took them. Um, he didn't take any documents printed. That was far too risky. So everything was on extremely encrypted thumb drives. He was, you know obsessive compulsive about security that's why he he was able to do it without being detected i mean imagine the surveillance the nsa is under the nsa itself is under they don't just put the entire world under surveillance but obviously within you know Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of protections that he very adeptly circumvented simply by just being a self-taught you know kind of genius and when it comes to computer security and information security and so it was all on tiny little thumb drives and you know there are ways to in to authenticate an archive of the size you know it's the reason why i knew the hunter biden archive was genuine you know one of the things or, or i had a similar archive that uh was given to me in brazil in 2019 that the brazilian government ultimately tried to imprison me for that let us do very destabilizing reporting about corruption in the brazilian government you have this gigantic archive and as you you know the question you asked is always the question how do you know it's authentic so there are ways you know there's Emails in the archive, so you go to people who are on the email chain that you trust, and you ask them to show you the emails in their inbox. And if it matches what's in the archive, that's very strong indicia that the archive is authentic. You try and match it to public data, but also private data. And at some level, though, there's a leap of faith. Like you can never have 100% certainty that it's authentic. But you get to the point where you're willing to stake your career and reputation on it. And I got to that point of comfort in Hong Kong, just like I did with the Hunter Biden laptop story and and also the Brazil story, where you're convinced that, you know, the the documents were of such complexity and some of them were verifiable through non-public means. We had an expert review the, the metadata on a lot of them to look for any signs of tampering or anything being fraudulent or forged and got very, very comfortable And then when we went to the U.S. government beforehand with the first story to ask for confirmation, they didn't deny that the very first story I did, which was about a FISA court order that authorized Verizon or ordered Verizon to turn over all telephone records, all telephone records of all American citizens to the NSA when the U.S. government didn't claim that was a forgery, tried to convince us not to publish it on national security grounds. We took that as confirmation that that document was accurate and we were kind of off to the races.
0: An amazing thing you say, like you, you get the protection of the limelight. So it, it was the most terrifying moment is after you go to the government and say, care to comment before you go public, that's the point at which you don't have the protection of the limelight where you're too big a fish to catch now and you're at your most vulnerable.
1: For sure, I mean, and, and you know, I had a war with the Guardian. I was at the Guardian at the time. Obviously, The Guardian is a big old newspaper. They were being very careful um, about the story. They were behind the story. They were supportive of it. They wanted to do it. But they were also very, you know, worried about their legal exposure. I had a source, you know, a 29-year-old guy who had just done this incredibly courageous act. He unraveled his whole life to show the world the truth about what the U.S. government was doing. And I felt my primary obligation was to him and then to the public. And so... You know, I wanted these stories published in part because I wanted to make sure they got published before anyone could take it away from us. Obviously, we hid the material, but, you know, nonetheless, if we're trapped in a legal investigation, it would be a big impediment. Whereas The Guardian was kind of being more careful and slower than I wanted them to be. And so I actually got to the point where I threatened The Guardian and said, if we don't publish by 5 p.m. today, it was actually four days after I got to Hong Kong when I demanded that for when that first story was published, I'm going to just start publishing this on my own. And You'll lose the story of a lifetime. You'll lose a Pulitzer. You'll lose everything. I had also talked to a couple of their media outlets about their willingness to do it, like the nation. Um, But I was really prepared to just go do it on my own precisely for that reason. I knew it was urgent that we get this material into the public domain as quickly as possible. It was necessary to protect Snowden. It was necessary to protect ourselves. But also... It was necessary to protect the story, to make sure the story happened, that the government couldn't stop us. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Guardian was put in a bad place because they weren't quite ready to publish. But they knew I was serious that I was going to just take my story and leave the Guardian and go do it on my own. And they decided to publish that first story. And from there, published every story thereafter that I wanted to publish. And we had a pretty good partnership over it.
0: It's fantastic. I, I could carry on with this for much longer, but I, I, there's a few other things we need to get discussed before we're done. Uh, the Brazilian story. Now, I know that this is going to have a contem- uh, contemporary application. Can you explain what, I mean, I understand it, uh, as we say in French, en diagonale, like loosely, but explain what happened in 2019 and its relevance to what just happened and what is going on now in Brazil.
1: So, Brazil is a country that has been plagued by systemic corruption. For decades, you know, when you look at Western governments and talk about corruption, you talk about one congressman who takes a bribe or you talk about legalized corruption, right? The way lobbyists fund uh, campaigns and incumbents in order to get legislation they want. When I'm talking about systemic corruption, I mean, pretty much nothing in Brazil happens without major companies depositing millions of dollars into Swiss bank accounts of major political officials. That's how politics works in Brazil. And every political party is implicated by it. But the country, the party that had been running Brazil for many years, from 2002 until 2016, was the Labour Party or the Workers' Party, uh, founded by Lula da Silva. And in 2014, a anti-corruption probe started. And it was started by these young, very zealous prosecutors who, you know, were of the next generation and weren't willing to accept that Brazil was going to run forever on this corruption. And they started digging into this corruption. They started putting billionaires in jail. I mean, like the richest and most powerful people in Brazil. And I was very supportive of this investigation at the beginning, like a lot of people were. These guys became heroes, including the judge who oversaw it, who was sentencing these people to long prison terms, these people who usually had been immune. But after a while, it started looking to very politicized. They became obsessed with putting Lula in prison, even though polls were showing or because polls were showing, in 2017 that he was by far the front runner to be reelected president in 2018. He left office in 2010 because of term limits. He was clearly the front runner. They wanted to put him in prison. They did not want Lua coming back. And I started suspecting that they were starting to kind of cross red lines that these judges were starting to get high on their own PR. And then in 2019, a secret source that contacted me told me that he had hacked into the telephones of the leading judge, who by this point, the one who sentenced Lula to prison, by this point, he was not just a judge. He was now Bolsonaro's basically his attorney general, his, his minister of justice and security. So, this kind of quote, pro happened where this judge removed Lula, the primary impediment to Bolsonaro's winning that election. And then, in return, when Bolsonaro won, he elevated this judge to the most powerful position in the country. And the hacker who contacted me said, I've hacked into Judge Morrow's phones, I've hacked into the phones of all these prosecutors. And he gave me this huge archive that showed immense corruption on the part of that judge who had become the, you know, the most powerful hero in Brazil and the prosecutors. And we began reporting it and it was extremely destabilizing to the Brazilian government because that judge was the anchor of Bolsonaro's government and the imprisonment of Lula was this kind of symbol of anti-corruption. And my cause was never getting Lula out of prison. You know, my husband's a member of Congress in Brazil. He was never a member of Lula's party. He was a member of a left-wing opposition party to Lula. My cause was never Lula's party or Lula. My cause was that, you know, you cannot have judges cheating and crossing every ethical line to imprison people with no due process that, you know, he was plotting every day with prosecutors during the trial in secret. So the whole thing was basically rigged. And when we revealed that, it led to the reversal, the nullification of Lula's conviction. He was released from prison. Um, the Supreme Court ultimately nullified his conviction, and that's what enabled Lula to run for president against Bolsonaro as he sought reelection in this election. Lula narrowly won um, by you know one or two points, and we became my husband and I sort of public enemy number one of the Bolsonaro movement for an entire year because they thought you know we were there to just kind of. Help Lula. And I think the Bolsonaro movement now understands that that was never actually my my goal. My relationship with that movement is much, much better. Um, In part because the Bolsonaro movement, for all the fears people had that it would be authoritarian, that Bolsonaro was Brazilian president, would be authoritarian. They ended up really being the targets of authoritarianism, primarily from the Supreme Court, which imposed a censorship regime that makes the one in the US and Europe look like bastions of liberty and freedom. And I've been one of the leading you know, voices denouncing this censorship regime, aimed at Bolsonaro and his movement. And that kind of recalibrated how I am understood in Brazil, both for the good, but also for the bad. A lot of members of Lula's party hate me now, even though I'm the reason they got to vote for him for president. So that story was a, a very intense story. It went on for about 18 months. It culminated in my indictment. They tried to imprison me for it. The Supreme Court intervened and said, I have a free press right under the constitution that prevents my
0: imprisonment. But it you know, became a very tumultuous story. That's, I mean, it's nuts. It's, it's actually nuts that you have two of these. These are cinematic experiences on their own. You have two of them. And now it, it, it illustrates also that like the history of, of the 2022 election, 2023, whenever it was, of Bolsonaro, it's the dynamic is something like the war in, in Russia, Ukraine, where there's a lot more than most people are aware of because they only became aware of it within the last six months you get Lula out of jail, which pisses off Bolsonaro. But then, but I mean, what happens with the reverse um, prosecution now, like the, the, the sanctioning uh, Bolsonaro's attorney, sanctioning Bolsonaro for contesting the elections? Is this just corruption as determined by whatever the powers that be are? What's the direction of the corruption in Brazil?
1: Yeah. I mean, my you know main worry is not the return of the Bolsonaro movement. It's the authoritarianism of the institutions that united in the name of stopping him. You know, it reminds me a lot of what happened in the United States where it got decreed that Donald Trump was not what I perceived him to be, which was, you know, kind of a aberrational figure comportmentally, but really kind of just a continuation of the American political tradition. The idea that he was some singular evil, a new Hitler was always completely laughable to me. But Most of American liberalism and by American liberalism, I mean, not just the Democratic Party, but a lot of the establishment sectors of the Republican Party really did come to believe that Trump was this unique threat and therefore they united. And that was why that video of Sam Harris's just a few months ago went so viral, because Sam Harris expressed what they were all thinking and that has been driving the United States for the last five years, which is Trump is such a singular evil that anything and everything we do to stop him, including lying, censorship imprisoning people with due process no matter what we do the ends justify the means because stopping trump is such a high imperative the same thing happened in brazil these institutions decided that bolsonaro was such a grave threat to democracy and everything decent that anything and everything necessary to stop him became justifiable including implementing a form of tyranny where any dissidents of the establishment to the establishment any supporters of bolsonaro were subject not only to being censored, and I'll just give you a, a statistic that's amazing. Ten members of Congress, ten members who got elected by the Brazilian people, including some with the highest vote totals, all on the, the Brazilian right, are banned by order of the Supreme Court from accessing any social media platforms, even though those social media platforms have found that they haven't violated the rules of the platform. So the most popular politicians of Brazil, some of them, are not allowed to use Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Google, anything else. This is the and some of them have been arrested. Journalists are in exile, and you know. So what concerns me, and it shocks a lot of people on the Brazilian left who thought I was their ally, was that I don't regard anything and everything done in the name of stopping the Bolsonaro movement as justified. I don't regard left-wing authoritarianism as better than the right-wing strain, and this is now the the driving dynamic. Um, especially after what happened on Sunday with the sort of their own January 6th that's obviously now going to be used to say that we have to even come down harder on the American on the Brazilian right now Lula's is a very pragmatic guy he has a lot of challenges in governing Brazil my belief is that the reason bolsonaro left Brazil for the United States on the last day of his presidency is because there was a deal made that look just leave Brazil stay quiet don't encourage your maniacs to wage a civil war. And in return, if you do that, we'll agree not to prosecute you and your kids for corruption. And the Bolsonaro family is pretty corrupt. And I think that was the deal that was made. But now that this kind of happened, this leaderless movement, you know, went to Brasilia and out of frustration and rage, they didn't kill anybody. There was no plan to overthrow the government. It was very much like January 6th, just kind of venting a lot of, you know, unexpressed anger. They entered government buildings they did some property damage it was not a good thing and now it's going to be used much like september 11th was much like january 6th has been much like every crisis always is to crack down even harder on civil liberties
0: It's it's unbelievable um and it's fascinating now as far as the media goes you know you're working with the guardian back with snowden they're reluctant to put this out but they're still holding the government in check holding the government feet to the fire i mean We're now seeing a media that's doing the exact inverse now, whether or not uh, it sounds like your explanation might be, it's still the battle against Trump. So all is fair in the battle against Trump. But has the media always been like this, but it's just been amplified now? Or has there been a moment where there was a radical shift and they became a monster that they weren't prior to?
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's it's kind of a symbolith, like a kind of religiously held view on the American right that the media is left wing and liberal. And there's an extent to which that's true. Like obviously with culture war issues, that's true. There, obvi- It's always been the case that journalists are more democratic uh, aligned than they are Republican. But their real ideology is not leftism when it comes to things like foreign policy or economic policy. It's adherence to establishment authority. That's really what those media corporations are there to do is to serve establishment power, much more so than advance a left-wing or a right-wing agenda. And so I think people have forgotten that the institutions most responsible for selling the lies of the Iraq war to the American people weren't Fox News and the Bush White House. They, they did that too. But conservatives didn't need to be convinced. They were lining up behind their party's president. What was needed were for liberals to get on board with that war and the war on terror generally. And that's where the New York Times and the New Yorker and the Atlantic and the Washington Post came in. They were being fed lies by the security state, giving anonymity to those people and mindlessly publishing under the front pages. true. And that's what convinced at least half of American liberals and Democrats to support everything Bush and Cheney were doing. If you look at the Cold War, that's the role that American media corporations played. So one of my earliest critiques when I began writing about politics, never wanting to be a part of those media corporations was that they were doing the opposite of what their job was supposed to be. They were supposed to be adversarial to the FBI and the CIA and the NSA and the Justice Department. But instead, they were totally subservient to them. So that's always been the case. That's always been true. But at least you have some, you know, examples, some counterexamples. Like I said, The Guardian was behind the Snowden reporting. We did expose secrets. We worked with major media outlets around the world willing to do that. Occasionally, you know, they exposed war and terror abuses and things. It was mostly left to WikiLeaks and whistleblowers. But sometimes media corporations were willing to do that. So I think the problem was there. But Trump, for exactly the reason you just alluded to, and that I described in my last answer, did change everything in the sense that they became convinced that the only thing their only mission in life is to destroy Trump and his movement. The CIA, the FBI, the Justice Department, Homeland Security are their allies in that mission. And therefore, I believe they're more subservient than ever and more willing to spread false propaganda from these institutions than they ever were before.
0: Now, this question might, we won't have enough time for this, but maybe if you can pick one, or if your answer is they're all part and parcel of the same thing. The Twitter files drops that we've been seeing now for the last little while, I presume none of it is is new whatsoever to you. Um, if you had to pick one element, one aspect of it, or if it's impossible, what is the biggest the most important of the of the Twittered files, the Twitter drops that we've recently seen.
1: I think it's the union between the security state and big tech and the role that the security state is playing. I mean, and it's an amazing thing, if you think about it, that the security plate state is the dominant force in deciding what information we are allowed to have access to and what information we can. Who is allowed to be heard on the internet and who is not. These are not decisions being made by executives at Facebook or Twitter or Google. These are decisions being made by the U.S. government, the majority party in Washington, which is the Democratic Party, and particularly the, these agencies that dictate to, not with the force of law yet, but with implicit threats or promises of reward for compliance, you know, remember that con- companies like uh, Amazon and Apple and, and, and Facebook have immense contracts they get from the Pentagon and from the FBI and, for, and, and the NSA, they're, they're all in bed together, and so the, a month before the Twitter files began, two of my former colleagues at The Intercept, Ken Kumpenstein and, and Lee Fung, got a hold of Homeland Security documents that they published that showed that Homeland Security has a fully formed plan in place to insinuate themselves inside the censorship decisions of all of these big tech companies. That's what that whole disinformation czar was about. They just picked a woman who was way too insane and she was a bridge way too far. <laughs> For this to happen, but you know, the whole plan itself is still going forward. They're buried in, they're burrowed within these, these companies that control the source of our information. You know, that's why inside all of these companies, just like in all of these newsrooms, you look up and down the list and you see nothing but former FBI lawyers and CIA agents and NSA, you know, operatives. I mean, the security state has penetrated the key media and big tech companies in American civic life and dictate and and dominate and control them. And that is why it sickens me, sickens me to my core, that Democrats in Congress are currently united unanimously to try and block investigations by Congress into these relationships.
0: Uh, I mean, people are saying that there's not going to be any solution to this problem, to the extent that half of the country th- approves of it. I mean, what is the Advice that you would give to those who say, I don't mind it because it's directed at my enemy.
1: You know, I mean, the argument that I've been using forever, you know, going back to when I was trying to get Republicans to be concerned about warrantless spying under George Bush and Dick Cheney or the ability to put American citizens into prison without charges or lawyers or due process was, look, I know you trust George Bush and Dick Cheney, but what about when Hillary Clinton gets this power? Right. It's like the, the argument that you try and make to people who don't care about censorship on principle. I mean, that, you know, they should care about people being censored, their fellow citizens being censored just on principle because it's wrong. But okay, if they don't have principles, you still want to reach them. So you try and appeal to their self interest and you say you like the censorship regime now because it's your enemies being public, but being punished and silence. But if that machinery that you've Endorse the construction of falls instead into the hands of not your political allies but your political adversaries. Aren't you concerned about the fact that one day it's not going to be your adversaries but yourself who will end up censored? Which is why I thought it was so funny when those handful of journalists, you know, those liberal employees of media corporations who have spent years agitating for a big tech censorship regime, got kicked off Twitter for 12 hours and they Mm -hmm. suddenly Mm -hmm. declared a free press crisis because for once it was them and their friends being silenced rather than their political enemies. It's just very hard to get people to look ahead, even if you appeal to their self-interest. But I don't know, I mean, I think all of us who do what you're doing and what I do, which is wake up in the morning and try and participate in political dialogue and discourse, even if we don't admit it, have within us a certain kind of optimism, about the power of human reason and the ability to persuade people through dialogue to see things they may not want to see or to think differently about things. If we didn't believe that we wouldn't be doing it, no one would wake up and engage in futile behavior. So I do think that there there have been times in, in the American past, like after Watergate, when people's eyes got open about these agencies and people were willing on a bipartisan basis to try and come together and limit what they could do. It wasn't very successful. The intelligence committee community mostly immunized themselves. The reforms were mostly illusory, but at least the truth was dragged out into the light. And I'm hoping that's what happens this time as well.
0: Okay. And last question, because I know you got to go. Uh, you got the show on Rumble every night. Glenn, people are going to look at you and say, how do you do what you do? Because y- your, your resume, it's, it's not just impressive, it's almost unbelievable. How do you get away with doing what you do where you don't get the Snowden treatment, you don't get the Assange treatment, you don't get... Fabricated sexual harassment stories brought up from thirty years ago. How do you succeed in doing what you're doing without, I don't know, without getting the treatment of, of that we've seen other people get?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've come close. Um, you know, during the Snowden reporting, I wasn't able to leave Brazil for an entire year because the U.S. government was threatening both publicly but especially privately that if I stepped one foot outside of Brazil, they would arrest me. Um, the Brazilian government did actually indict me and brought twenty six felony charges against me, which I happened also to be able to get out of. I do think a lot about how to, you know, manage that line where, you know, you want you you don't want to compromise your core integrity ever, but you have to be shrewd and strategic because if you're sitting in a prison cell like Julian Assange is, your your efficacy is going to be reduced. I don't mean to blame Julian at all. There's few people on the planet shrewder than he. But when you become so much of a danger, they're they're not going to allow you. So I think I flirted with that line a lot. Um But I do try and think about how to stay on the right side of that line, Um, just enough to be able to continue to do what I do. But there have been very close calls. And I think part of it is luck. Um, But I also think that part of it is once you build up a certain kind of profile publicly, it does become harder for these governments to act against you. We returned to the United States, you know, after a year, myself and Laura Poitras, my partner in the Snowden reporting, even when the US government was privately threatening us, because it was the week the Pulitzers being re- were being announced. We were pretty sure we were going to win. There was a Polk Award that we were coming to get. And so we kind of felt like it would make it much harder for the government to arrest us when we were coming to get our Pulitzers and Polks and then lecture the rest of the world about the importance of press freedom. So a lot of it is just gambling sometimes too about how far you can go.
0: Amazing. Uh, Glenn, I mean, people can find you. Glenn, uh, G. Greenwald on Twitter. The name of your show on Rumble? is System Update. It's amazing. Okay, thank you very much. I, I, I know you need to go, so thank you for doing this. I'm gonna continue. I just knocked my computer. I'm gonna continue rambling afterwards, but I'll, I'll message you. Thank you very much for doing this. Whenever yeah, you can I do just want to again- say
1: you know I do a lot of interviews. Um, your questions were incredibly interesting and thoughtful. It makes you know being interviewed much much more enjoyable, and you're getting smart and thoughtful questions. I I say that sincerely. So I'm happy to come back anytime. I'll probably persecute you and and chase you to come on my show as well at some point. So it was great meeting you and great talking to you.
0: The same, thank you very much. All right, have a good afternoon. You too, bye-bye.